We are in 1 Peter. This morning, 1 Peter chapter 4. So I invite you to turn your copy of God's Word to that section. If you don't have a Bible with you, there is likely a blue Bible underneath the seat around you. We have those there for you. We'd love for you to pick that up. You can turn in that Bible to page 1016, I believe, and that'll bring you to 1 Peter chapter 4. So let me give you a little context first. Maybe you weren't here last week. Didn't get a chance to listen to the message before we read this passage. Because again, this passage fits into a letter. Okay? Can't be pulled out, it needs to be read in its context. But in the context, in the passage leading up to chapter 4, just at the end of chapter 3 of First Peter, what we saw is that Jesus, the Christ, the perfectly righteous one, the one who never sinned, who lived righteously while on this earth, the one who always did the will of God, his Father, was nevertheless subjected to suffering. He, the Lord of Lords, in carrying out God's will, was made to suffer greatly in the flesh. Might I might add, he never turned back. Nonetheless, he never turned back, but pressed on, even in the midst, in the face of suffering, in doing God's will. Now, beloved, listen to me. If suffering for the sake of righteousness was inevitable, or inevitable, rather, for our Lord and Savior, okay, if it was inevitable for our Lord and Savior, for the divine Son of God, who we are called to follow as Christians, yes, whose footsteps we are to walk in, yes, then should Christians be surprised to experience suffering or persecution as well for doing God's righteous will, for living lives that honor and glorify and magnify Him. No, in case you didn't know, no. In fact, we should expect it in this fallen world, a world full of unregenerate men and women who become bothered, agitated, and angry when the light of a Christian living righteously exposes the darkness of their lives and pains their conscience. You know, when we were in Romans many, many, a long time ago, in Romans 1.18, preaching through there, in that section of God's word, Paul says that the unrighteous, those that are unregenerate, still enslaved in their sin, they suppress the truth about God. They suppress it. They push it down. It's all around them. God has made it evident to them, but instead of embracing it, And embracing the Lord and coming under his rule and reign, they want to continue to live for self and be the captain of their own ship. So they suppress the truth that is all around them concerning God. And beloved, one way they might do that is they suppress those who proclaim that truth, who live that truth out. They look to shut them up. And that shutting up happens through various means. It can be through intimidation. It can be through mockery. We've seen throughout the history of the church, it is through imprisonment, torture, death even. Because they do not want to be confronted with the light of God. Or the light of his people. If our Lord suffered... For the sake of righteousness, should we expect not to? And that really sets us up for the text. 
Okay? So let's read it. First Peter 4, 1 through 6. Having just talked about the suffering of Christ in chapter 3, at the end of chapter 3, his suffering for the sake of righteousness, in order to bring people to God, in order to deal with our sin problem, the just suffered for the unjust. He says in verse 1 of chapter 4, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, Christian, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised. You know, the folks you used to hang with and run with and sin with, they're surprised when you do not join them anymore in the same flood of debauchery. And they rejoice that you found Christ. They malign you. They revile you. They slander you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. All right, beloved, that's the text. Let me say a couple of things up front. There are two ambiguous or difficult, hard-to-understand statements in this passage. You should be getting used to this by now as we've continued through 1 Peter. There's some difficult phrasing, difficult statements. One is the last part of verse 1, that phrase, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That is understood in a variety of ways. Also, the end or the entirety of verse 6 is also a difficult ambiguous statement, okay? And we'll cover those in time, not today. Lord willing, next week. But as I've said before, as we get into the details of some of these passages and, and do our best to, to understand rightly what Peter is communicating, it's important that we understand the main point of the passage, that we not lose sight of that. And the main point the way I understand the text, the main point is the imperative or the command in verse 1. It really, everything else is flowing out of that. And that imperative is arm yourselves with the same way of thinking or with the same attitude some translations have. That being the same way of thinking that Christ has, the same attitude Christ has, specifically in the context when it comes to suffering for the sake of righteousness. Arm yourselves. That's what he's saying to the Christians there in the first century there, Peter's readers. Arm yourselves with the same attitude, with the same thinking concerning suffering for the sake of righteousness that Christ had. Arm yourselves. This morning, before we get into the details of the uh, passage, by the way, when you guys saw the title, Arm Yourselves, what did you immediately think of? Yeah, weapons, right? You know, oh, pastor's going to give a message on uh, owning guns. Because, uh, you know, that's what... But it's not out of line. You would arm yourself in preparation for maybe a potential battle or a conflict, right? So it's not wrong to think in that vein, but in this case, we're not arming ourselves with 45s or 38s, but we are arming ourselves with a particular thinking, mindset, attitude, purpose, that being the very purpose, attitude, thinking of Christ concerning suffering, persecution, for the sake of following God. You with me? By the way, beloved, when we talk about being conformed to the image of Christ, being made in his likeness, it includes this. Thinking like he thinks, having the same purpose he had, has, having the same attitude, 
concerning these things, okay? So this morning, before we get into the details of the passage, and in preparation for the main point, which is arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, I want to first take some time, that's what I'm going to do this morning, you can kind of consider this a long introduction to the text, and I'm going to have you think through a few things with me and also revisit some of what we have uh, or what I've said before concerning this letter. So today, long introduction. First, for some of this will be a way of reminder, maybe for some of you it'll be new to you, but first, along with hope, our eternal hope in Christ, our inheritance, along with that hope and along with holiness, God's call upon our lives to live holy lives, for he is holy, okay? Suffering is one of the major themes of this letter. Hope, holiness, and suffering, those are th- the three major themes as you read through the letter. And they are not disconnected, but connected. We are called to be holy. Holy living will bring suffering. We are to be holy even in the midst of that suffering. And we will remain steadfast if we maintain and hold on fast to our hope. Okay? Kind of how it's all connected. But Peter continues to come back to the subject of suffering, addressing it from different angles in this letter, as we see again here in 1 Peter 4, 1 through 6. However, however, we must not forget this, that the suffering primarily spoken of in this letter by the Apostle Peter is not a general or common suffering or a suffering that all of humanity, that is, believer and unbeliever alike, experience to one degree or another. It is not that primarily that Peter keeps bringing up and addressing. Not that kind of suffering. And by that I mean this, such as the loss of a loved one. Okay, The whole world experiences that kind of suffering. Believer, unbeliever alike, rebel to God Follower of God, they both lose people, loved ones, and they suffer, yes? But that's not what Peter's talking about here primarily. He's not talking about the loss of your health due to sickness and disease. All people experience that, believer and unbeliever alike. He's not talking about the loss of your property due to disasters or accidents, again, That's a common suffering. It's a shared suffering among all of humanity, every continent. They experience this kind of suffering, right? But it's not that that Peter is addressing. It's not the pain suffered as a result of broken or messed up relationships. Believer and unbeliever alike experience broken and messed up relationships. Yes? Marriages, experiencing pain and suffering. Beloved, that's true of Christians and non-Christians. It's not the painful consequences and suffering that come from foolish or sinful decisions, such as poor financial management. That's not what Peter's talking about. And I, I am pressing that point because I don't want you to be confused when we begin to talk about how Peter addresses suffering, that it's not just the common general suffering. It's something unique to the follower of Christ that Peter is getting at. It's unique. It's something Christians living for God experience that no one else does in the world, this kind of suffering. It is a suffering, beloved, just to reiterate and to make very clear to you, it is a suffering that comes as a result of carrying out God's will or faithfully doing what God wants. And when you think of this, don't think of some special, unique, particular will or plan. Like, do you mean by that, Pastor, he, I believe he's called me to be a missionary, so as a missionary then... I might experience suffering in fulfilling that will. Well, that is true, but you need to back up a little bit more when I say doing God's will. Doing God's will certainly includes that, but it includes 
that would be unique for one person, right? But it includes a much broader thing, like flee youthful lust and pursue righteousness. Live for the Lord and honor Him. Make Him known. Proclaim His excellencies in the midst of this dark world. That is the will of God for you and I, Christian. Say no to sin. Take no part in the works of darkness. Be loving, be kind, be forgiving. Be patient, be long-suffering, which means don't be unkind, don't be unloving, don't be unpatient. Suffer long. That's the will of God for you and I, Christian. That's what I mean by when one does that, when one lives for God, there is a suffering that can come to the Christian as a result of that living. It is living no longer under the unrighteous rule of sin, but living under the righteous rule of God. It's another way you might say it. The suffering that Peter talks about is suffering for the sake of righteousness. It is suffering that comes as a result of following the perfect righteous one. Jesus Christ, and walking as he walked. Are we called to walk as he walked? Yeah, 1 John 2, 6. We are to walk. If we abide in him, then we are to walk as he walked. We are to live as he lived. How did he live, beloved? Righteously, always in submission to the will of God. Always in honor and glory of God. And of course, we struggle, but that is to be the aim of our lives. We are not perfect. We are still being sanctified, and our salvation is being worked out in us and through us and the power of the Holy Spirit. But we are to strive for that. That should be the aim of our lives, the direction of our lives, living unto the glory of God, just as our Savior did. And as we do, We will suffer. We will suffer. We will suffer as we live out God's call upon our life to be holy in all of our conduct because he is holy. Again, it is suffering for the sake of righteousness. You with me so far? So, Pastor Jeremy, I'm going to speak in the third person. I don't normally do that because it's always a little weird. So, Pastor Jeremy, let me get this straight. If I give my life to living for God, to doing his will, to following after Christ, to living for the Lord, to saying no to sin and yes to God's righteousness, are you saying I will suffer for it? Yep. I'm only saying it because the scriptures teach that. I have no authority. The authority said it. Yep. Or if you don't like that, yes, yes, to one degree or another, at least in this present world, you will be persecuted. You will be troubled. You will suffer to one degree or another as you live out your Christian life in honor to God, as you abandon the sin of this world and live for the creator of the world. You will. Now, one might say, that doesn't sound at all like what many of the preachers on TV say. You're right, it doesn't. I didn't say all of them. I said many of them. It doesn't sound like that at all. Because they are prosperity gospel preachers. Prosperity gospel preachers. They are false teachers. They are false teachers. They are everywhere here in the States. Their message is Christ died so that you can have a good life now. That's their message, beloved. One of them wrote a book called Your Best Life Now. His name is Joel Steen. Do you know Joel Steen has the largest church in America? I say church loosely. He has the largest gathering of people who call themselves the church in America. I think it's close to 50,000 people who attend that uh, false teachers teaching every week. 
your best life now. This teaching, you know, this teaching would only, it only works here in the States, and then it's been exported here out of the States. Because, I'm going to tell you why, because we are a wealthy nation. So they, they teach you, listen, God died, God sent his son to die for you so that you would be healthy and wealthy and have nothing but good things happen now, right now. Why? You don't have to wait for heaven, get it now. Claim it by faith. It's yours for the taking. Which is just completely contrary to all the scriptures. But it makes sense it would come out of the U.S. It's the only place where it would fit because, well, we are a wealthy people. And so part of this gimmick is that they tell people, hey, listen, you can be wealthy too. Just keep feeding our ministry and have faith. Keep planting your seed into this ministry and it'll grow and blossom into something wonderful and you can be wealthy and happy and prosperous like me too. Which naturally then justifies these lavish lifestyles of these prosperity preachers, right? Because how, how do you justify that? Well, I'm just, I'm telling you, you can do this too. You can have this prosperous life. You just got to have faith like me and put a little bit more money into the plate. So, you know, no wonder people are confused. Joel's not the only one. There's too many of them. And with the advancements of television and internet, it's everywhere. By the way, people seem to have no problem, or false teachers seem to have no problem finding a great number of people willing to buy into their lies. You ever thought about that? They have no problem. They have no problem filling their buildings with people who continue week after week to come back even after such blasphemy is spoken. Why do you think that might be? Because they tell people in their unregenerate state what they want to hear. Second Timothy 4, 3-4 says this, For the time is coming, Paul says, and it is certainly here and has been here for some time, when people will not endure sound teaching. They won't endure it. They won't put up with it. I don't want to hear about this suffering for Jesus stuff. I don't want to hear about the cost of Christianity. I don't want to have to hear that I have to render my life unto the Lord. I want to be the captain of my own ship. I don't want to hear that heaven and all the wonderful things that come with it are sometime in the future. What about now, man? I live here in the now. I don't want to hear about how terrible I am. I want to hear about how good I am. I want to feel good. I want to come out of the service feeling pumped, motivated, good about myself. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And passions here is not a good passion, it's evil passion. Desires. Their own lust, their own greed. They will turn away from listening to truth and wander off into myths. These guys succeed because they tell people, unregenerate people, or maybe, maybe, in some cases, Christians who are very misled, they, they, they feed on their lower nature. They, they, they minister to their lower nature, not to their new nature, or they minister to an unregenerate person. They tell them exactly what they want to hear. You are awesome, you are great, and God died for you to be great. Listen how different this is. And I'm just setting this all up for our text, but listen how different this is. Here's a man I respect so if you're going to listen to other pastors, here's one I would endorse. I don't agree with everything. We don't have the same, but this is a good man. His name's John Piper. Here's what he says. See how this fits with, the, with what is out there in abundance concerning the gospel, prosperity gospel, and these false teachers. He says this. Does this sound weird to you? Normal Christianity is pain. 
not sure I want that. Now he defines sorrowful, yet always rejoicing is the pattern. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing is the pattern. Suffering for the sake of Christ, but rejoicing in my hope, rejoicing in that Christ and God uses even this suffering to conform me to the image of Jesus, rejoicing that my life is not out of control, but God sovereignly has his hand over it. He's working all things out for his good, for his glory, rejoicing, but suffering. Then he says, prosperity preachers, like the one I just talked to you about, do not prepare new converts in the third world countries to endure the realities of what it will cost them to be a Christian. Right? Because they export this junk. They export this garbage to these third world countries and they go and take advantage of them too. And they tell them the same lies and nonsense. God died to make you great and to bring you health and wealth and prosperity. But guess what? In third world countries, they look around, they go, wait a minute, even after they've bought into the lie, they go, things aren't getting much better for me. Things are just as bad as they used to be. And even worse yet, because of strong persecution against Christianity that exists in those countries, they say, hey, I'm for Jesus, and they might get beaten, excommunicated from their family, lose their jobs, so on and so forth. And they think, wait a minute. I've had the rug pulled out from under me. What's going on? That's not what the man said. He said, if I put some money in the plate and give my life to this God, this God will make everything wonderful for me as long as I have enough faith. It's a travesty. There's a lot of confusion, beloved. There's a lot of confusion concerning what is normal Christianity. Or what authentic Christianity really is according to the Bible. There is. And we need to be careful not to buy into that nonsense either. Otherwise, we will not have the right thinking concerning suffering and doing the will of God. Or the right attitude when it occurs. Now when it comes to 1 Peter, Bible commentators tell us that Peter's Christian readers were also confused by the persecution they were encountering for following Christ. They were confused as well, which is evident by reading the letter. A few verses later in chapter 4 of 1 Peter, Peter says this, just a few verses later. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. Here we go again that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed. Their shame was suffering as an evildoer or a meddler. There's shame in that. But you, Christian, take no shame in the suffering that you're experiencing. They may try to shame you. They may say there's something wrong with you. You take no shame when you suffer for the sake of Christ, but let you, Christian, glorify God in that name. Can't wait to get to that text. But I just read it to show you They, too, were a little alarmed, okay? So here's a question. Why might have Peter's readers been surprised or confused by the persecution they were experiencing for living for God? Well, it wasn't because they were influenced by current-day prosperity preachers, okay? They didn't have that disease running its course. They didn't have that. So why then were they surprised or confused? Well, consider this. The Christians Peter's were writing to before coming to Christ, they practiced idolatry. Okay? They practiced idolatry. How do you know that? Look back at the text. 1 Peter 4, this text that we're in, look back at it. In verse 3. Again, we'll break this down in detail. I'm just going somewhere with you right now. 
There, Peter says, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. This is what these people grew up in. This is what they practiced. You've done that long enough. The time has passed. Don't return. You're not to return to that life. Okay? That's what you used to do. Remember, the church is new. This is the first century. So we don't have generational Christianity here. You don't have people growing up in Christian homes. You have the gospel coming into paganism. And these pagans have turned from their paganism unto Christ. So he says, in verse, then in verse 4, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. Why are they surprised? Because that is what they always did before. That was their pattern of life. Idolatry, by the way, impacted every area of their life. It was, it was part of the culture. You, everything you did somehow was impacted by your worship of false gods. You with me? It was not a secular culture. It was a religious culture, a false religion that the gospel came into and saved people out of. So, Peter's readers had repented of their idolatry, of worshiping and living for false gods, and they had, by the grace of God, turned to the one true God through saving faith in the Son of God, their Savior, Jesus Christ. Glory, hallelujah. However, before their conversion, they followed after false gods. You with me so far? All right, it was part of their life. And generally speaking, it was thought that these false gods, if you worshipped them and expressed your devotion to them, would reward you in one way or another, and things would go well with you or better for you in this life. Whether it be you're making offerings to a god so your crops will produce, or you're making offerings to a god so that your spouse will be fertile, fertile, or you're making offerings to your god so that the anger of the gods would not consume you, but you'd have the favor of the gods. But all of that, that worship, that devotion, theoretically would bring a better life. Now, we know it's all false, but that was the thinking of the day. Huh? You with me? Okay. But now, having turned to the one true God, <laughs> and they find out all these other gods are false, but this is the one true God. He is the Almighty. They turn to him through Christ, and they now find themselves being persecuted and suffering for their faith. What is up? Things have not gotten better, but things have gotten worse. Huh? So what they needed to understand is what Christ knew. In this life, suffering is inevitable for those who follow after the one true God. For those who live for him, it is inevitable. It is a reality. So they should plan on suffering for the sake of righteousness. They should make a commitment that they will not turn back. They will, they will commit themselves to doing the Lord's will, even in the face of suffering, because suffering is a reality for the people of God as they live for God in this fallen world. That's the mindset they should have. That's the thinking they should have. That's the attitude they should have. It was the same as Christ. And why is that? Why is it like that? Well, beloved, again, let me remind you of some things. According to God's word in this present life, in this fallen world, due to the unsaved world's hostility and rebellion against God, those who follow the Lord Jesus Christ can expect and will to one degree or another experience persecution for following Christ. And don't think persecution just in the sense of locked up in prison. It could lead to that. It does lead to that in other countries. It could lead to death. It has led to death in other countries and throughout our history. But persecution comes in many forms. Mockery and reviling and, and pushing back and, and, and ostracizing and cutting off. It 
They will experience suffering, the people of God, for their devotion to God. They will be troubled for faithfully doing God's will, for walking away from sin and walking in God's righteousness. Listen, I've referenced these verses many times. I believe Thomas mentioned them last week, but here it is again. The Lord Jesus said to his disciples in John, write it down, chapter 15, verses 18, 19, 20, 21. Here's what he said to his disciples. If the world, and he, there he's talking about the world of unbelievers, if the world or the world of unbelievers hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I came along and chose you out of the world, glory be to God, therefore the world hates you. He goes on to say if, in verse 20, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. You need to get this. You need to understand this. Otherwise, you are going to be alarmed and you are going to freak out. And you need to know this is the Christian life. But all these things they will do, he says in verse 21, to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. They don't know God. That's why they do what they do. They're living in rebellion to God. Uh, Next chapter, John 16, verse 33, he said, in the world, again to his disciples, in the world, this present Life, you will have tribulation, trouble. Again, beloved, he's not saying you'll have trouble because, you know, living in this world, your car's going to break down, uh, you're going to get sick. He's not talking about that. Why even need to, you don't need to say that. You don't need to point that out. We already know that. Huh? We, that's our common human experience. He's not talking about general suffering. He's saying, you, Christian, are going to have trouble because you are going to live for me. And in living for me, the unbelieving world's not going to like it. You know? All right. But maybe the, these, uh, those words of Christ, maybe, uh, maybe they were only for those living in the first century. Is that possible? They, uh, you know, that was the early days of the church, the birth of the church. So maybe Jesus was just pointing out, you know what, guys, as we get this thing off the ground and you're stepping right into a real pagan environment, there's going to be a lot of pushback. So, uh, yeah, you're going to have trouble. They're going to persecute you. But don't worry, things will get better and eventually the United States will come and I'll raise up my prophets to tell them the truth that ultimately Christ dies so you can have the good life now. I almost throw up just in saying what I just said. Are things different for us now? Are things that are not as crazy as they were back then? Is that true? Beloved, for the most part, the church of Jesus Christ, for any of you who have studied church history, and if you haven't, let me encourage you to do it. The people of God have been persecuted throughout the ages, beloved. For what? For following Christ. For doing what is right. For walking in the light. Last week, Thomas, preaching from Colossians 1, 24 through 29, he did a two-parter as well. He'll come back and finish that up. Looking forward to it, as I said before. But in that section, he, he just covered the first couple of parts. He spoke about the suffering of the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul as we know from the Scripture, suffered a great deal for the sake of righteousness. Yes or no? Yeah, a great deal. He suffered for doing God's will. And of course, we know that God said He would. We find that in Acts 9.16. I'll show him how much he must suffer for my namesake. Now, I guess we could say, well, that was the Apostle Paul. I mean, he was a persecutor of the church. So now he was a defender of the church, and in defending the church, God, God was going to make him suffer. Or maybe it's just a special calling of his. Or maybe it's just because he also was in the first century and just things were going to be tough. That's why he was going to have to suffer. Okay, that's not true. None of that's true. And I know that because of what he said to Timothy. Will you turn in your Bibles real quick? Real quick, turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy. It's on page 995 in those blue Bibles. All right, so quickly, I want you to note this. Paul writing to Timothy while in prison in chains, 
writing the last of his inspired letters. Why? Because shortly after this, he was going to be executed. Yeah, 2 Timothy, last letter. I said, I said, yeah, did I say 2 Timothy? Turn to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, last inspired letter Paul would write because he was going to be murdered. He's in prison waiting execution. So now he writes to his beloved son in the faith, Timothy, Timothy. And why was he going to be murdered? Because he was living for the will of God, not because he was an evildoer. So watch, 2 Timothy, I'm going to skip one. Seven through eight, watch the progression. For God gave us a spirit, he says to Timothy, not of fear. Not of fear. Don't be afraid, right? We know Christ has overcome all this nonsense. We know our victory is for sure. But in this life, you're going to have trouble. But God's given us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but... Share in what? In the, you know, in the, in the wonderful, all the houses I've uh, accumulated through my gospel ministry. All the fancy cars, share in it. Just rejoice in it. Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Okay, watch. 2 Timothy 2, 3. Next chapter. What does he say there? Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. 2 Timothy 3, 10 through 14. You, however, Timothy, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. In other words, I'm living for the Lord. I'm pursuing righteousness. And then he says in 11, you've also followed my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Yeah, Paul, but you know, that's you, bro. That's you. I mean, God said you were going to suffer. And so, yeah, he had something special for you. And then he says in verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be. What? What? All. Not just Paul, not just the first century Christians, all, all who live for the will of God, all who will say no to sin and yes to righteousness in this present age will be persecuted. Yes or no? Yes. And then he says in 4 or 5, 2 Timothy, as for you, always be sober-minded, endure, What? suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Okay, 2 Timothy 3.12. I got to close with this. I got to make sure you don't leave without this. So 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Uh, One translation, trying to make it more readable, says it this way. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be treated badly. That's one way to understand it, but persecuted. Persecuted for the faith. They will be treated badly. Now, over the years, I've thought a lot about this passage. And remember that 1 Peter was written to suffering Christians. They were suffering, okay? Those, they were striving to live godly lives. They had abandoned their, their uh, paganism, their idolatry, and they were therefore living differently unto the Lord. And as a result, they were getting flack for it. They were getting pushed back. They were being maligned. They were being treated badly. They were being spoken evil of. Yeah? Right. By the way, they couldn't escape it. There was a culture of idolatry, like I told you. So it wasn't like us who can ride under the radar because their whole culture was a pagan culture. So now they've come out of paganism and everyone knows. Hey, dude, what's up? Why don't you come to our pagan party with us anymore? What's your problem? I'm sorry, I, I follow the Lord. Oh, I see. But they couldn't escape it. And they lived in close community. So it wasn't like, we don't even know our neighbors, man. So you can become a Christian and no one even knows. Except maybe the person who led you to Christ, right? So these people, are they're taking it. But, But what about us today living in the great U.S. of A? What about us? I want, let me ask you something. Is it difficult for us to relate to this letter? Has it been difficult for you? 
They're there in one sense, beloved. Listen, in one sense. We live in different times in the U.S. of A. In that sense, I mean, there is a degree, there has been, it's eroding, but there has been a degree of acceptance of Christianity. Why? Because of the founding of our country. Based on Judeo-Christian ethics and worldview. It was founded on those things. So, it's been eroding. There is pushback more and more. Okay? But we, we live in kind of a safe zone in the United States of America for the time being. It's eroding, though. Hello. It's eroding, but different than, a, than growing up in a paganistic culture. Or, for instance, being born in a Muslim country and then coming to Christ. Yeah? Because they're going to know right away, why don't you come to the mosque anymore? Because you have to come all the time. Why aren't you bowing down to pray three times a day? You see what I'm saying? So in the United States, which really is more like a secular culture now, you can, you can kind of move in and out as a Christian, maybe not experience this suffering. But here's my question. This is what I want to leave you with. I'm going to get under your skin right now. Is our lack of suffering, because I think, when I ever I read that verse, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I always have to pause, I have to think about that. When's the last time, have I been persecuted? Am I being persecuted? And again, not people banging down my door and taking me off to prison, but am I feeling pushback for my Christianity, for my Christian faith, for my living righteously? Is our lack of suffering for the sake of righteousness because we live in a a more tolerant society, or you could even say godlier society, a Christian society of sorts, than the church in the first century lived? Or is it because, or is it because we are less godly than we should be? Is that possible? Do we lack in suffering for the sake of righteousness because we lack righteousness in our lives? I'll come back to this next week, but let me leave you with this as a possible why we lack righteousness, the righteousness of God in our lives, and therefore even have a hard time relating. Arm yourself with suffering? What are you talking about? Suffering is so removed from us. Why? I suggest it is a lack of righteousness in many situations. And don't get me wrong, beloved. It's not like you go, hey... I should be suffering for my faith, so I'm going to go find some suffering. I'm going to go, I'm going to go talk to those people over there. I'm going to go tell them, you better repent and believe in Jesus and see if they, if they yell at me. Because then I'll know I'm living righteous. I'm not talking about that. You don't go looking for suffering. Suffering comes looking for you when you are living for Christ. Right? You, you were hanging out with your buddies. You had buddies before you got saved. They're unregenerate. They're sinning. In one way or another, you sinned with them. Now, you either continue to sin with them or you say, I can't do that anymore, and immediately that bothers them. And you begin to tell them about Christ, but they get even more frustrated. Or, by the grace of God, they get saved. Hallelujah, glory to God. That's why you do it. But sometimes, and more often than not, they get frustrated because their conscience is pierced. They're pained inside because they're reminded again and again of their rebellion. And because of that, all of a sudden, they defriend you or they say evil things about you. You begin to get pushback. That's one example. It happens over and over again as one lives righteously in an unrighteous world. And I am persuaded that the church, at least in the U.S. of A., does not live as righteously as it's been called to. And that is why it doesn't experience the degree of suffering that all of our Christian brothers and sisters have throughout the ages. And I'll tell you, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, babe. I know you're looking at me like, dude, you went over again. But I'm, I'm sorry. Listen, it is our culture of comfort. It is our culture of comfort. In this country, we work hard to be comfortable, okay? Whether it be through technology, medicine, you name it, we work hard to be comfortable, is that not true? 
I mean, the microwave's not even fast enough. That irritates us. We need fast. We need quick. We need comfortable. We don't want to be irritated. Okay? We don't want to be inconvenienced. We love convenience. We love comfort. Now, listen. Is comfort bad? It's not bad, beloved. I love my comfortable bed. I like comfort. Maybe I should say I like. I like my comfortable bed. I like comfort, okay? But because we live in a culture so focused on comfort, think about even pain. Think about even pain management. Is pain management good? It it, it is generally good, okay? It's definitely good when they put you under the knife. You want them to give you pain management, put you out, okay? And then when they wake you up, feed you full of drugs so you don't feel that they cut you open, yes? There's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's pain management. That's good. But if, if, a, if a good thing or a neutral thing becomes the most important thing to you in your heart, more important than God and doing his will, then it has become a bad thing. When a good thing or a neutral thing becomes the most important thing to you, And so, we're surrounded by comfort, and all of a sudden, we start to live for Christ, and guess what? Pushback, discomfort, suffering, persecution to one degree or another. And because comfort is so important to us, we compromise. We stop being bold. We stop proclaiming Christ. We stop making him known. We go ahead and laugh at the sick and disgusting jokes that dishonor God. We join in in darkness instead of standing back and saying, I cannot partake, even if it means you're going to hate me. We need to arm ourselves, beloved. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, help us to repent. Lord, show us in our hearts and our minds where we have compromised with your will, with your desire for our lives. Begin to do a work in our hearts. Stir us up, Father so that we might truly live for you. Help us to be those who are committed to doing your will no matter what. Help us be resolved to suffer for the sake of righteousness, to not turn away, but for you to be the most important thing in our lives, even more important than our own comfort. Work in our hearts and minds so that this church, this little church here in North Fontana might really, truly Live for your glory. Live to bring you honor. Oh, help us to do that, Father. In Christ's name, amen.